Titus chapter three and verse one. This is what Holy Scripture says. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, we get to eat and drink the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, and that is a privilege for us. The Lord's Supper is the family meal of Grace Fellowship Church. It's where all of us who are members of this church and our Christian guests join together to do what Christians have done for thousands of years. What are we doing? We are communing together with Jesus by actively pondering what Christ did in the past in order to save us, what he will do in the future in order to renew us, in order that we can be with him now in the present as he keeps us. That is why the only people who can rightfully participate in eating and drinking are the ones who actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You you cannot commune with Christ if you don't know Christ, if you've not repented from your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Anybody who would do that, who would take and eat and take and drink, would, in that inauthentic way, would actually be inviting the judgment of God against them. Now, occasionally in the life of our church, we like to sort of slow down what we're doing in order to focus a little more widely and intently on the Lord's Supper because we want to look to the Lord. And that's true today. We've already, if you've been paying attention, we've, we've read from the scriptures texts that tell us about what Jesus did to save us. We've been singing songs that recount what Jesus did in order to save us. We've prayed the word, we've sung the word, and now I'd like to preach the word. And I want to remind you, if you're a Christian, I want to remind you of what Jesus did in order to save you, to truly save you. And if you're not a Christian yet, I want you to understand that good news so that you might respond to it and do something about it. And my hope, 
is that in doing this, it will prepare all of us well to hold the bread and hold the cup and remember the one who loves us, who gave himself for us, and is waiting for us. So let's go to one of those texts that lead, uh, lays out the gospel very clearly. This is Titus chapter 3. Titus, it's a name of a person. He was a co-worker of the apostle Paul. Paul wrote this letter, but he wrote it to Titus. That's why it's called Titus. And he's giving Titus instructions uh, with what to do with all the little churches that had just been birthed on the island of Crete. So Paul had been there, apparently, and they had preached the gospel. Paul has left. He leaves Titus behind. And now Titus is sort of putting into order all these new churches. What were the Cretans like? Well, if you just go back a page to chapter 1, uh, Paul quotes one of their own prophets. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. End quote. <laughs> and Paul says, surprisingly, uh, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply because that they may be sound in the faith. So that's who these people were before God saved them. And now that God has saved them, they're expected to live a different way. So look at Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. And, and by the way, no one means no one. Uh, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, that's quite a transformation. You've gone from being a lazy liar to showing perfect courtesy toward everybody, including the people you don't care for, including your own enemies. Now, it would be easy to think that this right here is a unique case, that this transformation from chapter 1, verse 12, easy, you know, evil, easy, lazy gluttons, evil beasts, the, the, the transformation from that to chapter 3, verse 1, only applied to Cretans. But as Paul makes really, really clear in the very next verse, chapter 3, verse 2, we were all Cretans. So if you were sitting there a second ago and going, man, am I ever glad I'm not a Cretan. Newsflash, you are, or you were, at least in how we used to live our lives. And then if we're Christians, we underwent this wholesale change, this transformation that took place. And the same thing that happened with the, the residents of the island of Crete when they embraced Christ as their Savior. They heard the gospel. They repented from their sins. They trusted in Jesus. That's the same change that took place in the ultra-religious Paul. He went from being one kind of person to another kind of person, from living one kind of life to another kind of life. It's the same thing that has taken place in you if you're truly a Christian, a complete and utter transformation of your relationship to God because of the Savior you trusted in. And this good news is laid out wonderfully in verse 3 down to verse 7. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in, in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. The entire paragraph hangs on the first three words of verse 5. He saved us. 
that three-word, life-altering, soul-transforming phrase. He saved us. And those three words make it clear. You were one thing, and now you're another thing. You were dead, and you are now alive. You were in sin. You are now justified. You were an enemy of God. You are now God's beloved child. And so this paragraph also breaks into two parts. First part, what we did, our contribution to the spiritual relationship we have with God, what we did. Part two, what he did. And that's the outline for our sermon. What we did and what he did. And we start with the first, what we did. This is verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, etc. Now, this is interesting. Look at how Paul begins here. He starts with we. And just to make sure we don't miss the we, he adds ourselves. We ourselves. Who's writing this? The apostle Paul. <laughs> we ourselves, me the apostle, Titus my apostolic representative, and all you Cretans and everybody else, we, all of us, were, aren't you glad for that word, were, <laughs> We were once these things, but we're not these things anymore. So prior to his remarkable intervention in saving us, we ourselves were once, let's sum it up with the word dead, spiritually dead, full of evil thoughts and deeds that proved we were dead in our sins. My friend, this is a description of you it is a description of me. It is a description of everyone in the history of humanity before God saved them. What we were was defined by how we lived, what we did. Birds fly, fish swim, sinners sin. Paul lays out our sinful behavior before God saved us, and he does it in four pairings. It is what we did. What we did showed what we were. I'm going to warn you that if you were born in the last 30 years, you may get triggered by the following section of this sermon. Because you have grown up in a culture that tells you you have to guard your self-esteem. You have to promote your self-worth. You have to tell yourself all the time, I'm a wonderful person, I'm a wonderful person, I'm a wonderful person. Can I just relieve you of that mirage and say, your Bible is honest. And all the things you see around you and all the things you know to be true of your own heart are laid bare before God when he speaks. The Bible's honest. It takes the presenting evidence of reality <laughs> and says, this is, this is the truth. We're a mess. And I can prove it to you by what we did. So first pairing is this. We rejected God's truth and God's ways. Verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. The word foolish in your Bible, the, the foolish person is a, a person who lives like God is not real. They are a functional atheist. Regardless of what they say, they function like God is not real. An example of this would be Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool, David writes, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. He doesn't necessarily say it with his mouth. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Unless you think that only applies to the enemies of a Jewish king 2,000 years ago, 
uh, the Apostle Paul quotes that psalm when he's talking about us in Romans chapter 3, and he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all... You have to look up and see my hand motion now. All... Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. If you're not Jewish, you're Greek in this context. It's just a word for anybody that's not Jewish. So that's you. We're all under sin, under its dominion, under its power, under its influence. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Brother, sister, that was you. You were born a fool. A functional atheist who lived your life as if God were not real. And you did this in spite of the fact that you had this, maybe we could call it an inward impression or, or spiritual compass that was always telling you there is a God, there is a creator. How could all this be here if there wasn't? But you denied by your unrighteous acts and your unrighteous thoughts. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, their unrighteous actions and thoughts, suppress the truth. Like the giant beach ball kids, if you've been at the beach this year and you're trying to put that thing out of the water, it keeps popping up. And that's what it's like to be somebody who's denying God. You're trying to deny the reality of God hold it under the water, but it always pops up. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, an attribute is a characteristic, his invisible attributes have been, uh, namely, his eternal power, the power of God, and his divine nature, his divinity, have been clearly perceived, understood, observed, been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. All that is around you is shouting, there is a God, there is a maker, there is a creator, he exists, and you know it. And you can tell yourself till the cows come home, there is no God, there is no God, but in your heart of heart of hearts, do you know what you really think? I am telling you what you think. You think there's a God. But we are fools, and we tell ourselves there is no God. And that kind of folly or foolishness results in living like God is not real, pretending that he is not there, pretending there is no day of judgment, pretending that our souls just vanish at the end of this earthly life, whatever you want to tell yourself. This is what Paul calls being disobedient. That's the next word there. We, we, we rejected God's ways and his commands. We lived contrary to God's will. We, we denied God in our minds by our willful suppression of what we knew was true. We denied God in our actions by our willful disobedience of how he told us to live. So we rejected God's way. We rejected God's word, all of us. And it gets worse. The second thing, we fell prey to deception and slavery. Verse 3 again, the words, led astray slaves to various, various passions and pleasures. To be led astray means to err, to get off the path. We were, we were led away from God. And, and these words, led astray, being enslaved, they can sound very passive, like we were just the poor victim of circumstance. But it takes a fish to bite a hook. 
Eve was tempted by the devil. But Eve was a freestanding moral agent when she chose to listen to that lie and take and eat. And for all of us born since Adam's rebellion, because he joined her in that rebellion, we are not led astray by sin as much as by our own corrupt desires. This is what James was getting at in James chapter 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. No wonder the Apostle John wrote what I prayed earlier this morning. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. All of us had been led astray. All of us had bought the lie. All of us were dangling on Satan's hook. And he was reeling us in, reeling us in, reeling us in. How was he reeling us in? We were enslaved to various passions and pleasures. Passions is a word. It's sort of neutral in your Bible. depends on the context. This is obviously bad. Forbidden desires. That's what he means by passions. Pleasures. Forbidden enjoyments. We were enslaved to God substitutes. That make sense? Rather than finding our happiness in the Lord, we looked at the things the Lord had made to fulfill and make us happy. I am not, because I, I don't really care, but I don't really know what fish eat. I just know that if you put a worm, a living worm on a hook, sometimes a dead worm. I grew up at a cottage in the summers, so sometimes you're a lazy dead worm. It worked. Um, I just know that you could go out on the rocks where the little sunfish were and you could put a worm on your hook and you could put it down and you could, you could just watch the fish and you'd come and you'd bite your hook and you'd take the fish, fish off your hook and you'd throw them back in and, and you'd put another worm on and I'd watch that fish and he would come back, the same fish. Like, you are a dumb fish. That fish is enslaved to his worm desire. I mean, the fish is there thinking, ah, surely this time there's not going to be a hook. <laughs> Which is precisely what you think every time you bow down to that little idol, that little God substitute. Surely this time, nope, every time there's a hook. <laughs> Before God saved you and me, we had the sense of a sunfish. We lusted after pleasures that were forbidden from us. By the way, pleasures that God forbade for our own good and prosperity. But we, we would pursue them. We would bite that hook again and again and again and again. We were enslaved. There's, I love what Paul writes here. There's these various, various passions, various pleasures it's the same word James used in chapter 1, the variegated trials that come our way, the multicolored kind. There are pe everybody's got their own idol. Uh, yours might be a TV show or a cosplay or hunting or board games, whatever. We can easily make an idol out of anything. And that's why all of us were enslaved. Not only that, third thing, we filled our time with plotting evil and despising the prosperity of others, passing our days in malice and envy. Malice is not a word we use a lot in English anymore. It's the plotting of evil. 
It's lying in bed at night, plotting your revenge against that coworker. I'm, I'm going to take, take his stapler. <laughs> I, it's worse than that. And before God saved you, that's, that's what consumed your thoughts, revenge, payback, mean ideas, malice. We were passing our days in envy. A lot of our malice came from our envy. To envy is to want what you have and also want you to not have it. Not good enough for me to be, you know, on par. I want to make sure you don't have it anymore. I want it. It's how the mind thinks when you cannot bear another person's success or popularity or good looks or good fortune. And before God saved us, our entire person was turned away from God. We existed in this ravenous search for self-satisfaction. And we were willing to harm other people in order to get what we wanted, what we thought we needed. Our favorite pastime was thinking about us. And lastly, we lived hateable and hating lives. Hated by others and hating one another. Hated by others. It's the only place in the New Testament this word is used. It has the idea of just being um, despicable, <laughs> odious. The kind of person everybody kind of wants to hate. That can be hard to believe, but before God saved you, you deserved some of the hate you got. I'm not saying you deserved all of it. You were in some measure hateable. <laughs> and the rest of that hate just came from the other hateable sinners like you who were looking for somebody to hate on. <laughs> Hated by others, hating one another. So much of your life was taken up finding things in other people to justify your anger and your disgust of them. You were hateable and you were a hater. For we ourselves were once this. Once what? Spiritually dead. Maybe we didn't do all these things all the time, but we sure did some of these things lots of the time. We rejected God's truth and God's ways. We fell prey to deception and slavery. We filled our time plotting evil and despising the prosperity of others. We lived hateable and hating lives. We all once were this. That's what brought us, or rather that's what we brought to the table when we came to God. Here I am. Because of who we were, this is what we did. But let's turn our eyes now to what he did. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Verse 5. He saved us. And don't you wonder why? Why would God choose to save God-rejecting, pleasure-loving, evil-plotting, hateables like us? Well, that's what he tells us immediately before those three words he saved us. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So the first thing we get is God's motive in saving anybody. And Paul has us look at God's character as seen in Christ in order to understand God's motive in saving us. What is God like? First of all, he is generous. The, the word goodness there, 
the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. Goodness is, um, is a fine translation, but it's, it's not just the quality of being good. It's important you understand that word means doing good. It's the doing of the good. It's being generous. We already saw this word actually this morning. It was back in Romans chapter 3 when Paul was talking about what we're not. He said, all of us have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. There's the word. No one is doing generosity. No, not even one. No one's providing benevolence to others out of a pure heart of generosity. But God does that. God's first motive in saving us is pure, unfiltered generosity in the sending of his own son, Jesus Christ. But not just his generosity, also his kindness. The word Paul writes here, could we get our English word philanthropy from this word. It's a love for humans, but not just, oh, I love everybody. It's the love for humans that results in taking action to, to help and, to, and to, to solve problems for others. It's a very close synonym to goodness. After the, um, do you remember when the Apostle Paul was shipwrecked near the end of the book of Acts and like they all dove in the water, grabbed planks because there's no life preservers and, and float onto the island of Malta? Once everybody had swam ashore, Luke wrote this, the native people showed us unusual kindness, philanthropy. That's, that's the same word. How, how'd they do that? For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. That's a bad shipwreck, by the way. It's rainy, it's cold, it's night, and isn't it nice to be greeted by philanthropy? That word is sometimes translated friendliness. Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. <laughs> How did these particular attributes of God appear? Who made the generosity and philanthropy of God seen? Who showcased the Father's goodness and kindness? Jesus does that. God's great motivation in saving you was his generous heart and his friendly demeanor, and it is seen in Jesus Christ. That's the first hint, by the way, that your salvation really had nothing to do with you. It was all in God. What's the basis then of his saving us? This is the next thing. He saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's his mercy, not our effort. It's a not this, but that. This is like the one thing almost everybody really, really struggles to understand before they embrace Christ. You just want to believe that if you're finally good enough, you finally do enough, you pray the right way, or you, you repent the right way, or you just finally do it right, that you will earn salvation. Not when you read this. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Works done by us in righteousness means the things we do that we think should earn us some favor or bestowal of kindness from God. When I was in Sunday school, I went to Sunday school, 
I grew up going to church, and in my Sunday school, you got a gold star if you memorized the verse. Little, you know, everybody, gold stars, little sticker stars, and you would get a gold star. And I never memorized the verses because the whole thing made no sense to me as a child. I like, why do I want to take a sticker and stick it on a piece of paper? Give me a Lego block, and I will memorize the New Testament. You like, send me home with something, and, and that's good. But a gold star, not motivating for me. So... What might be motivating one person may not motivate another. Most of us have some thing or some list of things that kind of deep inside us we think are going to be the things that are, are really going to impress God. They're like, hey, and they're, they're like gold stars on a piece of paper. Maybe when you're five, that's something, but you can't, like, imagine showing up to God. Well, that's what all your good works are like. Piece of paper with gold star stickers on them. They're, they're worthless. Maybe your gold star was I, was, I was nice to a kid with special needs in my junior high. That's great. I helped the old lady get her groceries out of her shopping cart once. That was very nice. I didn't kick the neighbor's dog when I wanted to. I was also good. <laughs> I even gave $5 at Christmas to the bell ringer guy outside of Walmart. We got a really good memory for those things. Very high estimation of them. And we often think that those, those kinds of things are the things that are good enough to cancel out the time you were mean to your brother or the time you honked the horn at the lady that you had just helped her load her groceries but she's taking too long to get out of the parking lot. Or the time you did kick the neighbor's cat. Or the time you kept all your money in your wallet. You see, God's standard of righteousness is so infinitely higher than ours. To become a Christian, you had to be brought to a place where you realized that God demanded perfection. Zero sins, zero slip-ups, zero bad days, a perfect life. Perfect is the only acceptable life to get into heaven. Perfect. Not a tiny hint of sin. Perfect. That is why he says it is based on his own mercy. It had to be mercy. It had to be his mercy. Mercy means to be spared what you deserve. When the police officer pulls you over for doing 90 in a 40 zone, <sighs> And he says, all right, slow it down. Carry on. First of all, you're like, yes. But that's mercy. You, you did not get what you deserved. You deserve to have your license taken. When a professor gives you a, I'm, I'm not saying this was my own personal experience, but when a professor gives you a 51 when your earned grade was a 29 in grade 13 economics, that is called Mercy. I was spared what I deserved. Paul is talking about the mercy of God here. You were spared what you deserved by the person with the power to give you what you deserve. That is mercy. And Paul says, God saved you based on his own mercy, the mercy of him, his mercy, nobody else's mercy. 
And around now, you should be asking, like, well, how did he do that? That's the next thing, the means by which he saved us, a new birth and a new you. Oh, beloved. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured upon, out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. For you to be saved, if you, if you, it's not just you and Jesus, it's you and the triune God, right? God the Father. <laughs> He does things in eternity past to make sure it all happens. God the Son comes and accomplishes salvation. And in real time, God the Holy Spirit has got to do something. So we're over here in real time. God the Holy Spirit had to act. You were so dead, you needed him to make you alive, to make you new. So there had to be a new birth by the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The washing is what it sounds like, taking a bath or a shower. It's to get cleansed, to be made clean. This regeneration, this washing of regeneration means the, the washing of a new start, a new beginning. The, this interesting word is used only here and then by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, with a little footnote in our ESV that says, in the regeneration Truly I say to you, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Paul's talking about this, this personal newness, this new birth. That in, what's the new world? The new creation, right? The transformed new creation, the regeneration, the new beginning, the new and better start of something. So we are washed by the Holy Spirit in this regeneration, this new start, which is, he uses really another synonym, this word renewal, uh, to, to, the do-over, the start-over, the, the renew. Paul says that the people God saves have been restarted, <laughs> renewed, and that took place with a metaphorical bath, just like water washes off dirt, so this bath cleanses from sin. If, if you start the day with a shower, you're going to feel like a new man. And that's the idea of what Paul's getting at here. You have started a new life once God saved you. It was like the perfect bath. And we saw hints of this back in the Old Testament. The prophet Ezekiel said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and, and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit comes and the spirit indwells. Paul clearly understands that what took place with the Cretans on the island of Crete who had repented and believed was a work of God's Holy Spirit fulfilling the promises of Ezekiel that God, the Holy Spirit, would change those rotten Cretans just as he changed the rotten Paul, just like he has changed the rotten you by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Didn't that like, you've been to a shower or to a hotel with a horrible shower? It's like I dread that. Little trickle shower, like really? Like one drop at a time? <laughs> and, and that's not how he gives the Spirit. He pours out the Spirit richly upon us. God the Holy Spirit gave you a regenerating, renewing bath at the moment of your conversion and then took up residence in you. He did not wash off the dirt on you. He washed off the dirt in you. 
This is how he saved you. He cleansed you. He made you new. You were born again, to use another metaphor. So as we are united to Christ by faith, God the Father washes us by God the Holy Spirit. Now, why would he do this? Here's the last one. His purpose in saving you. His purpose in saving us is your justification and your inheritance. Verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, hallelujah, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Are there more beautiful words in the Bible than justified by his grace? If they're not beautiful to you, then I would urge you to think about them because I think they're the most beautiful words in the Bible. We were not saved, remember back in verse five, because of works done by us in righteousness. That's not why we were saved. We were justified, we were made righteous, declared to be righteous. That's what what justified means, to be declared righteous. We were declared righteous by his grace. We're not declared righteous by things we did. We're declared righteous by his grace. You needed God to declare you not guilty. Why? Because you rejected God's truth and God's ways. You fell prey to deception and slavery. You filled your time plotting evil and despising the prosperity of others. You lived a hateable and hating life. You were guilty in the eyes of God. He looked at you and he saw a person who had broken his law. Now, whether you rob a bank or park in a handicapped spot, either way, you're a lawbreaker. Likewise, you are guilty in God's courtroom regardless of the severity or how bad you have sinned against him. If you've sinned any form, you have broken God's law, therefore you are guilty before God. There are no fines that you can pay. There's no time served that can make amends. You cannot appease his eternal and very just anger at you. You deserve to die forever. And that is why hell exists and hell is a prison from which there is no escape and no parole and no early release for good behavior. No such thing. What you need, what you need and what I need is a pardon. You need to have God look at you and no longer see you for what you were. But God can't just wave a wand on whoever he wants and says, you're good, you're good, you're not, you're good. For then God would be unjust, unfair. No, far worse than this. God looks to his son and says, you go and you suffer in the place of that sinner. You take the guilt on your shoulders for all of their sins. You take my wrath that is deserving for them. I'll pour it out on you on the cross. You go in their place. You suffer. You die for them. And then justice will be done. Every sin is paid for, either on you or on the cross. Let there be no mistake, we are justified by his grace, by his own free, unconstrained, unmerited favor. God saves. 
Paul doesn't have to repeat that. Like the, just a few verses earlier, he said back in ch- chapter 2, verse 13, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 14, who gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself in the place of us. If you are saved, that is because Jesus went to the cross for you, for our sake. He made him to be sin. Him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God takes his righteousness. Jesus comes into this life, obeys every commandment, both in thought and in deed, fulfills all righteousness, lives the one life that fulfills all the law in all of its requirements, is declared righteous by his Father. He's earned his way to heaven. There is no sin in him. But he goes to the cross, and there he takes our sin, and then he gives us the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. So that when you stand before the Father in heaven on the day of judgment, he looks at you and he sees Jesus. The great exchange. Jesus takes all my sin, all of my guilt. And he gives me, not just a little, he gives me the righteousness of God. You get life, eternity, blessing, God. Jesus, God, death, separation, cursing, hell. And yet, because he is God, he could endure the eternity of hell you deserved in the span of three hours on that cross, made himself the perfect sinless sacrifice for you, And then God raised him from the dead, the seal of approval. What my son has done is sufficient. I will accept all those who are truly his. He is your great inheritance. Not only does he lay down his life for ours, he goes and prepares a place for us. So that being justified by his grace, this is verse 7 again, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What's an heir? An heir is somebody who's like, I own that, but not yet. I mean, it's mine, it's my possession, but I don't have it in my possession yet. I'm waiting for Uncle Louis to die, and it's all mine. If you have an Uncle Louis, I'm not talking about you. But that's, right? I'm an heir. It's as good as mine. Which is why Paul talks about hope, because hope in the Bible is what? the sure confidence in something that is definitely going to happen. We are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What we did, we dug the grave and jumped in. What he did, he dug us out and made us live. In a moment, we're going to hold bread and wine in our hands. And this is why. He saved us. 
Amen. Your Father in heaven acted out of generosity and philanthropy to send his Son. Jesus gave himself for us. He sent his Spirit to make us live when we were dead in those sins and buried six feet under in the spiritual grave. So, brothers and sisters, aren't you thankful that before he left, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You need to just keep remembering who I am and what I've done and what God has done for you. So let's meet with Jesus. I'm going to lead us in prayer first. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. The gospel is so good that we would never believe it if it were not written down for us. We thank you for what we see. Thank you for what we read. Give us growing understanding into all that you have accomplished for us and help us to remember Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.